Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 to 15 this morning. And if you are new to the church, new to the Bible, or not a Christian at all, I just want to let you know you are more than welcome here. We are thankful that you are joining with us. We find the, the Word of God is the very Word of God. It is our authority on all matters of faith and practiced life and belief, and we try to ground everything we do in them. And when we do that, what we find is that we are not only encouraged at times, but if we're reading the Bible honestly, we're going to find ourselves challenged. We're going to find ourselves uncomfortable. We're going to find passages that we may not like. And that ought not to surprise us. Because if we are talking about one and we are hearing from one who is holy, who is good, who is righteous and just in all of his ways, then we are going to hear from one who is unlike us. For we know, if you know anything about yourself and reflect it honestly about yourselves, you know that's not you. Our judgment, our wisdom is constantly failing. If you've had children or you've watched those with children, you've, you've seen when maybe a parent is standing at the bottom of a, a set of stairs or standing in the pool, holding out their hands, beckoning a child to jump to them, to, to jump to mom, jump to dad, I'll catch you. Now, some children uh, barely have two brain cells to rub together and they don't consider any costs and they'll jump whether there's someone there to catch them or not, right? They're just wild and carefree and they just, they just go. You don't need to coax them. You just need to be, you're, you're not trying to coax them. You're trying to like prevent them from doing things that are less than fully intelligent, right? Um, but others, they require lots of coaxing, lots of like, you can do it. You can, you can jump into the pool. I'm right here. I'm going to catch you. You can jump down the stairs. I'm going to catch you right here. I'm, I, Dad, Mom, we're not going to let you go. You can trust. We're good. Don't you trust me? And they kind of look at you. Yes, maybe. Really hesitantly or, or sort of. And you, you may think, if you've ever seen that, you may think, how could you not trust me? Do you not know what we have done for you? And you may recap, look, we feed you, we clothe you, we house you, we love you, we give, like, what is it that, you, that, that you're not sure about? You try to coax them, get them to, to take this small risk, but to trust you in it. I think often when we come to passages like what we're about to touch on, we need to remember when we do not understand or when we find God's word challenging to us, we need to remember the heart and the character of the one who gives it. That the one who gives it is himself good. That the one who gives it is himself righteous in all of his ways. Not just righteous, not just good, but wise. That is everything he lays out for us is wise. It is for our good, for our flourishing. And Paul is writing this letter to a church leader named Timothy. And 
We saw early on in chapter 3, Paul lays out why he's writing this letter. And part, a big part of it is so that Timothy and church leaders may know how the people within the church, how the church together is to function, how we are to behave, how we are to operate and structure ourselves and work together and live together. The aim, that's the aim, that the church may be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is glorifying the truth of God, glorifying God. That's why God lays these things out. Sometimes we come to passages of scripture and we, we struggle with them because they, they confront our sensibilities in one way or another. And the aim isn't to... It must not be to adjust the scriptures in such a way that they always agree with what we say. If, if we are always doing that, then it is not the Lord we are reading and his word that we are reading. It is our own word that we are receiving, making it to fit with what we think, what we want. Rather, at all times, it is our job as believers, as followers of Christ, to submit to him, to trust him, to take that leap. To know that God's way is best because God is wise and good. And here we come to a a particularly difficult passage. In fact, this is one of the most controversial passages today. It is constantly coming up amongst churches and church leaders. It is regularly being reinterpreted, regularly being twisted, regularly being cut out and ignored, and, and all sorts of justifications and excuses are, are given for that. We can follow along as I read verses 11 to 15, and you'll see why if you're just coming in, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, listen to these words, and you understand why Christians today, especially here in, in the West, find these words to be uncomfortable. Paul writes, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There are numerous ways that Christians have handled this text that are that are not very good some today and, and we can easily see you can read it and understand why some would see this as a text that is outdated inappropriate almost as if paul is advocating some form of uh, oppression abuse of authority you can find more than one author who argues that paul just here got it wrong He just made a terrible mistake. He's blinded by his own patriarchal culture and leanings. And he is recommending something for Christians that we ought to have moved past by now, that we ought to avoid. But I do not think it is safe for us to disagree with an apostle of Jesus Christ. Many others today argue that what Paul says here is true but that what he is arguing for is tied specifically to a, a, 
a specific instance in history that is going, a specific cultural uh, problem that is happening in Ephesus, where Timothy is at. And because it's a specific cultural problem that's located only there in Ephesus, therefore the injunction here doesn't apply to anyone else outside of Ephesus in this way. That's a very creative way of getting around this text. Oh, this applies only to them. If we could do that with all of the scriptures that make us uncomfortable, we could very easily, we might as well just take some scissors to our Bibles. And that is exactly what this, this emphasis does. It advocates that a, this historical records make it so that we do not have to pay attention to what Paul is saying here. There are unhelpful ways of looking at this text from a traditional point of view as well. If those are, those two others are modern readings, it is without a doubt true that this text has been used by Christian men to muzzle, to abuse their authority, to muzzle women, to abuse their authority in the church. Many men have argued that these verses uh, mean that women ought to sit down, be quiet, that there's no place for women to be seen or heard. But outside of the kitchen or the nursery, it is unfit for women to be involved in whatever capacity amongst God's people. And neither of these ways, I believe, capture what Paul is arguing for here. There are dangers on both sides, and we as believers must stick close to the text and try to find, try to navigate what it is the Lord has for us to say. It is not something we can excuse and get out of, nor is it something, nor is it Paul writing here as a hammer to oppress a particular group within the church. I think Paul has something greater in store for us, greater in store for Christians in general. And I would have us to see that this morning, that we may be encouraged to follow him with all of our being. So before we jump into such a, a weighty text, rich with so many difficulties, let us do what we always must do when we come to God's word. Let's pray, shall we? Father, this is your word. It is not ours. If we had written this, there is most likely these words would not exist. And yet they are here. And we trust that all scripture has been breathed out. That you have breathed it out. And that it is profitable for righteousness. For teaching, for doctrine, for belief, for faith and practice. For righteousness, for all the things that we need to grow in godliness. I pray that you'll help us along this morning. That will not just happen, O Lord, with you working in our minds. We will need you to work in our hearts to cause us to be willing to receive whatever you have here, that we may follow you, our Lord, our God, our King, our Savior. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what is it that Paul wants for us here to know? I think one thing for us to remember is that Paul is writing to Timothy. 
He doesn't start out this passage. We mentioned this last week. He doesn't have an appendix to this letter that he's writing to Timothy with, here are special instructions to men, and here are some other special instructions to women. Women, this is how you need to act. And by the way, men, this is how you need to make those women act. He doesn't do that. Instead, here he's writing to Timothy, a church leader. And he's calling Timothy, and through him, indirectly the church, and through this letter, all church leaders and all churches, to act and to think in such a way. And he starts these, this, what we may see as a, as a particularly oppressive word, he starts it off with a revolutionary positive command. Look at it with me, just those first few words. Let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. I think part of what Paul is getting at here is he, he is calling for Timothy and the church leaders and the entire church to clear the way so that women may completely and wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Let a woman learn. This is a positive command. Do this. It's a revolutionary command. Let a woman learn. In, in Paul's time, there were groups within Judaism out of which many Christians had come. There were groups in the world that cordoned off learning and growing, especially as it pertained to Christian godliness. They, they cut women off as if they were unfit to gather with the other men to grow and to learn. Even within Old Testament Israel, in the temple complex, there was a particular line, a courtyard, that women were not allowed to go into. There was, it was a courtyard for men. You can imagine how this particular instruction in other parts of our world today, particularly in the Middle East, how that command to a church leader would sound. Let a woman learn. That is a revolutionary word. We often, here in the West, we get hung up on other words in this sentence, and and we will need to navigate those words. But here it started off positively, and this would be the most offensive command in some parts of the world. Let a woman learn. What do you mean by that? That she is to gather with men? And that's exactly what Paul is arguing for here. In many parts of the world, an educated woman was viewed, is viewed as a danger to, to male supremacy. What Paul is calling for is for Timothy and the church leaders there and the church there and all believers following that we are not to see that there are second-class citizens within the family of God. There's not men and then there's not women. Here he is cutting through all of that and he is commanding Timothy, let a woman learn. Let, Let the women learn. Let them gather. Let them come and follow Jesus. Paul is calling for Timothy and for churches and for church leaders to be proactive in encouraging women to follow Christ. To be learners. That's the very heartbeat of what a disciple is, is to learn. To learn to follow Jesus. Let them come and learn. What does it look like practically for a church to encourage its women to follow Jesus? Paul begins to unpack that here. Let a woman learn in silence. 
Be, let me be clear. He is not calling for women to be quiet and never say a word. We know that because there are other passages in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, where women clearly have, they are praying. They are, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that there are, it is improper for a woman to prophesy in public in a certain way. Well, if she is doing that within the church body, that's a public act. This is not sit down, be quiet, and listen and do whatever the men have to say. You will not find that kind of language in the New Testament. I think what Paul is calling for here is, is two things. I think, first, he is saying that church leaders, we ought to encourage the women within the body of Christ to learn with attentiveness, to learn in silence, to, to, to gather with an attitude that yearns to hear from God eagerly, to receive his word with attentiveness, to, to be ready to receive whatever he declares. You can imagine, like in the very, first, the very verses be, before this passage, Paul is commending to women how, they ought to, how, how you as women ought to dress. And we, men, in verse 8, he is talking about submitting your, your hearts, your hands, your mind, all of it to the Lord in holiness. And for women, he, he draws out particularly, he calls you to a heart of modesty, to glorify God over anything else. This is almost as if he knows, okay, men, you are going to be acting in this sort of the way. You need to be warned about these sorts of danger, about anger, about the need to guard your heart with holiness. You need to be, you need to be particularly pushed in this direction. But he also seems to know that there is a particular push that, that women may have, that as women gather, there's a, an increasing temptation to outdo one another, not in showing honor, as he will command in Romans chapter 12, but to outdo one another in, in the way you dress. Paul doesn't want you to be distracted in that way. That nothing will take preeminence, nothing will distract you from actively listening to God's word. Let the women learn in silence. I think the second thing he is calling for here is that, remember, this is, he's writing this to Timothy. What does it mean to tell the pastor and the elders of a church that they need to let a woman learn in silence? Particularly, I think what he's calling for here is that we, as church leaders, as a church, need to be mindful that we are not creating a climate in which women are distracted. That is, we are not, we need to be careful to create a climate in which women can learn without distraction. Remember Mary and Martha. Two women whom Jesus is coming into their home. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus to learn. And Martha's frustrated. Why? Because she's busy and Mary's not helping her. And Jesus reminds Martha that Mary has chosen the better thing. The reality is that it is easy for you ladies to be so engaged in ministry that you're always busy with food, always busy with kids, always busy in some capacity, but never sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is, brothers and sisters, something we need to strive at always identifying and correcting. Both in our hearts and in our church, in our lives. I am abundantly thankful for the 
Individuals, primarily women, who give of their time in the morning to sacrifice to be in the nursery or to be in the beginner church or uh, Denise Baum in, in, in junior church, that is a sacrifice that they make on behalf. And there is a rotation for, for the nursery workers, for beginner church. They, they do such a wonderful job. And they do it so that they, many of us may serve without distraction. But we need to be conscious about who is serving and how often they're serving, that they, that they themselves are not robbed of opportunities to sit at the feet of Jesus. Let a woman learn in silence, and he goes on to write in full submission. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. What does it mean to, to live, to, to learn in full submission? Of course, the question hinges on, on submission to who, right? I've heard this text explain that women need to be submission in the church to all the men in the church. Or, uh, more popularly amongst preachers, women need to be in submission to whatever the pastor or preacher says. Well, all of us would like to have that role. Just do whatever I say. I think what Paul is getting at here is not calling them to be in submission to them, but to God's word. Let a woman learn in silence. Let a woman learn in full submission. That is, uh, to be receptive learners, to be submissive learners. To hear God's word and want to do it, to yearn for it. Women, sisters in Christ, is this something you want? Are you, and do you listen with an ear to obey so that you can follow through to follow Jesus? Or is your, last, or is your listening half-hearted? Is it distracted? Willing to follow Jesus as far as he tells you what you want to hear? And just last week, we looked at verses 9 and 10, particularly about not only submitting our hearts, but our closets to Christ. How is that going? What about you men? Men, are, are you showing with your posture, with your practice, your conversation after church that you care about God's word and are listening to it or no? That you eagerly receive and working to submit your life to Jesus or is that something only for other Christians? Here Paul is directly advocating for women but the assumption is and the, the, the aim is that men, you are going to be doing this yourselves. It isn't, okay, women, you need to be receiving submissively God's word, but man, you're off the hook. You can do whatever you want. Are we encouraging the women around us? Men, are you, you who are married, are you encouraging your wives to sit and to follow after Christ? Are you the one who's dragging your feet when it comes to gathering with God's people? Are you making it difficult on your wife? Do you show by your example as you sit there that you're attentive to God's word and that by your example it's important for her to be as well and not only hers, for the people around you? Kids, this, this, this is something for you. Give me your ears for just, just a moment. 
There is a, a legendary story. It, it's, it's legendary. I, I don't know if it's true, okay? It's been too many centuries to know how true it is, but there is a story of a man named Samuel Davies. Uh, he was a pastor, one of the famous pastors. He lived during the 18th century. That is the same time period that the Revolutionary War happened, okay? And he lived before the Revolutionary War, during the Great Awakening. He is considered one of the greatest preachers of his time. Now, we don't, can't prove that because they didn't have recording devices then to like tell us. But he is considered by those who heard him to be one of the greatest preachers. And he was, as legend tells us, he was invited to go and preach before King George of England. The same king that later, not too many uh, years later, revolutionary uh, loyalists would, colonists would uh, rebel against and uh, establish their, our own better country. Um, but uh, he went and he was invited by King George to come speak. So he goes and as he's preaching, and this is all legend, we're not sure how true it is, but as he is preaching, the legend tells us that King George begins to speak to some of those in the room with him. And he's apparently testifies later that he was merely talking about how good the message was. But Samuel Davies hears him talking, sees him whispering. And with a loud voice, he looks at King George in the eye. And with a loud voice, he says this. When the lion roars, the beasts of the forest all tremble. And when King Jesus speaks, the princes of the earth should keep silence. Here's my question, young people. Paul seems to be calling for women to learn in silence with full submission. Are you helping your moms and dads? Listen and receive God's word. Or are you distracting them constantly? Young men and women, you, teenagers, are, are you, you are now laying the foundation for the kind of listener you're going to be. It is important for you to bring your own Bible to church. It is important for you to study God's word. It's import, we want you to learn to know God, to know his word to know Jesus and follow after him. You can wait to talk to your parents, your friends, your siblings. You can do all that after church. While you're gathering with God's people, listen to God's word. Paul is calling upon us as a church to clear the way, particularly for women, so that they may completely follow Jesus submitting themselves to his word, to create a culture, a climate in which learning and following Jesus is expected, is is not just allowed, but wanted. There's something else that Paul commands here. That's the positive command, that a woman learn in silence with all submission. He goes on in verse 12, and or but... I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Here he is keeping the responsibilities of leadership in the church among men. And this, of course, sounds incredibly offensive to our modern ears. 
No matter how extraordinarily good people may be, how good people may be at hermeneutical gymnastics, that is, getting the passage and jumping through hoops and and working the angles to be able to get it to say or not say what you may want it or not to say. Here it is fairly clear and simple to understand. In the context of the public gatherings of God's people, women are not to be, within, with men present, are not to be teaching and exercising authority. They are not to be acting as elders. From verse 9 up till now, Paul's been concerned with how women approach worship. If you want to know why we as a church restrict the preaching and teaching of God's word in our gatherings of men and women, to just men, it's because of texts like this and others like it. Some translators, translations will render these words differently. If you have the NIV sitting in there for, in front of you, you may read these words, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Other passages or translations will say, say it a little bit differently. I do not suffer a woman to teach or, nor to usurp authority over the man. Or another says, I never let women teach men or lord it over them. Or another, I don't allow a wife to teach or to control her husband. But none of those capture what he's saying. It's not merely assuming authority as if there's, there's some kind of struggle. So that if there isn't a struggle and the men are okay with it, you should just take it. Here it is. As Well, it is well translated in the New King James and other translations. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have or to exercise, you might say, authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? Well, why does he do this? Is it because women are inferior? Years ago, I was with a group of individuals, older individuals, not from this church, so I feel safe in giving this illustration. And uh, it was some men and women gathered around a table. All of them were older than I. And uh, the topic of women in leadership came up. And I was just, as the youngest member of this table, I was just listening. And uh, I found it fascinating, the most ardent, advocates for women to not be in leadership, for, for women to, to not, uh, in, in any capacity, anywhere, was the women themselves. And here were the reasons. One, uh, they were all in agreement that women were not smarter than men. They were all in agreement that women were physically unfit to lead. Uh, they were all in agreement that women were emotionally unfit to lead. They had, they had a whole list of reasons. And I was sitting there thinking, is anybody going to say anything? This is the worst I've ever heard. I find it fascinating that when you read through this, Paul doesn't ground his statement in anything like that at all. The reality is, uh, many of you women are smarter than the men, have more education than the men, are better readers, perhaps better teachers, maybe would make better leaders. You, you could do a whole host of things. I know this. I, I married a woman who is better at so many things other than me. Paul himself 
would have seen the women in the, in the churches acting in such a way. In fact, you, when you read through his letters, he will often praise the women for their work. What, is ground, what does he ground this in? If not in some inferiority in women, what could possibly be the justification for such a command? We see this. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Here is that creation order. Adam is formed first, then Eve. That is, God had given particularly to men a role and responsibility to fulfill in homes and churches, to, to lead, to protect, to provide. This is an established cre- order from creation that is still abides to this day, which is why he get, grounds this command. It, you can't ground this command in culture because he grounds this command in creation itself. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is God's wise order for the world. Wise order for the home and for the church. Second, he says, and Adam was not deceived. We might say Adam was not deceived first, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul is not saying that because Eve was deceived, that women, therefore, are easily deceived and led astray. That's not what he's trying to say here. What he's getting at is that at the fall, though though the order had been established, at the fall, there had been this reversal of roles. God had established that Adam was to lead, Adam was to protect, Adam was to provide. And and what happens in Genesis chapter 3, which we read earlier, was that here is Eve taking the lead. Here is Eve evaluating the arguments. Here is Eve listening and receiving. Where's Adam? What is he doing? Why is he not stepping in? And rather than taking leadership, rather than taking the, the, the temptation, rather than stepping up with his wife, he abdicates his role and his responsibility. And that order is flipped and Rather than leading his wife, he allows himself to be led. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Paul is saying that there are ramifications to stepping outside of God's created order that may not always be obvious to us, but are there nonetheless. It seems to me that Paul is concerned, rightly so, that churches promote healthy male leadership. We can all see the godly women in this church excel. You ladies, many of you excel in knowledge and gifting. I've had the privilege of, of talking with numerous, being questioned by numerous ones of you, being, and, and being pointed to things I had not seen before. Your presence, ladies, amongst us is an encouragement, it is a challenge. To continue to grow, to pursue Christ. I think Paul knows that if the roles of preaching and teaching and leading, if those were given and allowed open to women, I think Paul knows that women would jump at it. We, we don't know what the ratio was to men and women in the first century. Historical sources do tell us that uh, it was four to six to one uh, women to men ratio. That is, there were four to six women versus everyone, which is part of the reason why it was so difficult for women, Christian women, to find Christian husbands if they were single. Well, I think Paul knows that 
In a fallen world, we as men would very quickly and easily abdicate whatever responsibilities we have to the women, to others. This is why I believe the very next verse in chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul goes on, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Paul is trying to stir men up to positions of spiritual leadership. He's not trying to keep women in their place. He's trying to encourage men to fulfill their spiritual obligation, which is why we have chosen as a church to restrict the reading of Scripture on the morning to, to men, not because you women can't read. We know you can read, and we know you can read well. The goal is to, to foment and encourage men to, to lead visibly, demonstrably. Far from seeing women as inferior, Paul ends by highlighting the unique contribution of women. And I think he he ends where he begins. This is, though verses 11 to 14 are the most frustrating verses in our modern world, verse 15 is the one, can I just be honest, it gave me the most trouble. I have been, there are verses that I and so delighted to preach, and there are verses that I dread to preach. This was one of the latter. This was a difficult one. There have been dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of ways that Christians have tried to understand this verse since Paul wrote it. I've read through dozens of them. So I'm going to give you what I think is right, but I'm only like 65% sure. Okay? So I'm being very careful with this. But I think I'm right. So, you know, I'm good. The Lord can correct me and correct us all in heaven. So if you have a disagreement with me, you can, you can certainly share that with me afterwards. I'll be more than welcome. And I may, you may even convince me and I may change my tune next week. But um, here is where I think Paul is driving us. He says, verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing, through childbearing, some translations will have. Nevertheless, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. One interpretation that is certainly problematic and certainly can't be true is that Paul is saying if women will have children, they will be saved. We, we know that that can't be what Paul is saying because Paul himself Everywhere where he writes is arguing for the, the, the sole sufficiency of Christ on the cross, dying in our place, and rising again from the dead as the sole means of our salvation. Nothing added to it. Nothing we can do. Only on Christ do we trust and cling. So he makes that clear all the way throughout. So what, what does he mean? One argument, and it is a good one, argues that by, by saved, he does not mean saved in the sense that we are saved from our sin. He means that we are, ladies in particular, are, they are sanctified. That is, they are fulfilling their, their God-given role. And, and childbearing is a, a small picture, a unique window into all the contributions that are particular to women. Childbearing, that is something that only women can do. And so he is saying, look, as you fulfill your role, filling out with faith, love, holiness, and self-control, you will be persevering in this good thing. But I don't think that's what he's getting at at all. Here's, here's why. Here's, here's my interpretation. Here's, here's why. Here's what I think Paul is saying. You see that she, 
That is a singular. He's not saying, nevertheless, women will be saved. It's she will be saved. Well, who is the she that he has been talking about through this whole passage? Eve. She will be saved. And it's in, not in childbearing. That makes it sound like the, this act of bearing children is what will save her. But in fact, in the Greek, there is an article. That is, uh, there's an article and it is a singular word. So it is not childbearing, but the childbirth. I think what he is getting at here is there is a, a sense in which some may have seen Eve. She was, the, she was the one who led her husband. She was deceived and led her husband to sin. Therefore, all women, unworthy to gather with God's people, unfit uh, or to, to act in, in, in certain roles, you are characterized as second-class citizens. And look what you did. You've plummeted the world. Because of you, we're all in sin. To blame women for the problems of the world. That, I know that may seem outlandish, but that, that is a very real possibility, a very real interpretation that some have taken. I think what Paul is getting at here is certainly Eve led the way, led her husband, and, because Adam abdicated his responsibility. But even as she may have led her husband into sin, it is through the act of of the childbirth, that salvation comes through the coming of Christ. And here we go from the garden to the virgin, from the garden to the manger, from Eve to Mary. I think that's what Paul is driving at here. Just as it may have been Eve who led the way into sin, though Adam is fully responsible for it, And because of him, all the world stands under him. Yet, it is also through the woman that the Savior comes. And we will be saved if we continue in faith. If we persevere in love and holiness and self-control. Here is, let me draw out several conclusions from this for us. Let me bring this home. Elders. Brothers, remember that Paul is writing all of this to Timothy, a leader of the church. It was his role and it is our role to see to it that women are encouraged, to an environment is created in which women are able to gather freely, regularly to grow with God's people. That they were to be valued, that they were to be shepherded, that they were to be invested in. And I know we as a church are seeking to do this. This is why I'm so thankful Ashley, not long ago, Ashley LeBlanc has led, over the last couple of years, she has led two uh, extended Sunday school classes for women on understanding and growing, and not only your understanding of God's word, but of your ability to teach it. We have sent other women within our church to... uh, Seminars in which they might grow in their understanding because we want women to grow in your ability to, we want you ladies to grow in your ability to understand God's word and to be able to communicate it with others. The more of us that can do that, the better. Brothers, this is something that we need to regularly pray for. Pray for the women of this church that they might grow. Are you the kind of man, brother, that a woman could ask a question of? We see Apollos is willing to submit himself to questioning by Priscilla and her husband Aquila. Is that something that we could be willing to submit ourselves to? Or are we dismissive? 
that the women of this church are going to grow, brothers, we have a hand in it. We must encourage it. We must do all that we can to serve them so that they might equally grow with us in Christ. Let us take that role prayerfully, seriously. Women, I pursue hard after following Jesus. You have every avenue in the church open to you, other, other than preaching and teaching, other than acting as an elder. You have every role open to you. Would you like to serve as an usher? Would you like to serve? In, is it your lifelong dream to serve on the soundboard? Hospitality, counseling, care, visiting shut-ins, providing meals, caring for children. The church needs you. We need you. You who have children in particular, I know kids are a great blessing, and sometimes during the service, they can be a distraction. But I want you to know two things. First, yes, we, we do have a nursery. We do have children's ministry. And you are more than welcome to take advantage of them. They are, they are for your good so that, they, so that you will be able to worship and hear from God's word without distraction. But I do want you to know that if you decide to keep your kids with you, we're good with loud noises. We're good with kids crying out in the middle of the service. We're good with all of the, the wiggles and all of the rest of the stuff. It takes time for kids to learn how to sit. We, we're good. And if no one else is, I am, because I can just take my hearing aids out, and I won't be bothered. <laughs> Our aim is to serve you, to love you. Single moms in particular, you have a greater challenge in this, that you don't have someone to help you. I want you to know, if you're a part of our church, like, don't do this alone. Men, encourage the young people in the church. Show by your example and your words how they are to live. And some of you ladies have been serving so faithfully, but at the expense of your own soul. And we are abundantly thankful for your faithfulness, but sisters in Christ... You need, you need to sit under the word of God more than we as a church need a nursery. Friends, we need to believe that as Christians, that if we are so dependent on the nursery keeping going and the children's ministry is keeping going, that we are working our, our, our nursery workers, particularly those who serve there, our women, to, to the to the bone, that they are serving week after week after week, never, ever getting a chance to sit under God's word. We are not just doing them a disservice. We're doing our whole church a disservice. We have a responsibility to serve one another. Brothers in particular, do not let the eagerness of the women in this church lull you into an action. We need you, brothers, to step up, to lead, to grow. Kids, as I mentioned before, teens, you're a part of this. In making worship, not just for you, not just for your mom, or your dad, but for the adults around you. To make it worship free of distraction. So that you're not sitting there playing on your phone, texting one another.
but that you yourself, Bible open, listening to God's word. Brothers and sisters, pray for one another in this. Pray for one another that we together may see and savor Christ, all of us. That every single person who comes through those doors may find here a place where they may learn and grow and know Christ. That is our goal. That is our goal. Help one another. Pray for one another. We are all tied together in Christ and so have responsibilities toward one another in this. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Our Lord, this text had and has much to say to us. You have much to say to us. Give us ears to hear, O God. And may you work upon our callous, apathetic hearts to draw us in, to draw us further on. Thank you for the women of this church. Thank you for the men. Work within us, O Lord, that we may individually and together pursue hard after you. In Christ's name, we we ask for all these things, trusting you to do more than we can think or imagine. In his name, amen.